What is righteousness? Are you living righteously? Through the Lenten season, I focused on the Gospels, the good news of Jesus Christ, following his footsteps through Holy Week, then his ascension into heaven. Then I followed his disciples as they dealt with his death and what they did after the resurrection. I now start a series through the book of Romans. It's the first of the letters from Paul to the various churches around the Mediterranean in the New Testament right after the book of Acts. Scholars think that Paul wrote this letter uh, later in his ministry. I think early church leaders put the letter to the Romans first after Acts because it so clearly explains what salvation is, the good news of Jesus Christ. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is one of those churchy words. It's not being holier than thou or being a goody-goody. Righteousness is simply being right with God. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Paul is writing to a church smack in the middle of one of the most pagan societies of all time, Rome. All around them, they witnessed sin daily. I won't go into details, but you can read it for yourself in Romans 1. God is angry at sin, especially idolatry. So I read uh, from Romans 1, chapters 18 through 25. Paul writes, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. As they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who was worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Growing up Catholic, we had pictures and statues of the Virgin Mary everywhere. I remember when I was a little girl asking the priest from our church in the Bronx to bless this little plastic statue of Mary someone had given me. He kissed it and gave it back to me. Looking back at that moment, I think, yuck. But then I actually remember thinking, that's it? Still, the Catholic Church is big on idolatry of both Mary and the saints. 
And I have a link in my blog um, to a podcast that I did, Who Are the Saints in the Bible? The Catholic Church encourages sinning. What the Catholic Church obligates you to do actually encourages sinning. The fact that they expect you to need confession every Saturday goes to show that they expect you to sin during the week. Satan loves that. Dr. Jim Dennison, who's one of the folks that I follow regularly and I read his um, daily articles, uh, wrote, The Holy Spirit cannot empower that which is unholy. Let's say that again. The Holy Spirit cannot empower that which is unholy. I compiled my series of podcasts on the benefits of salvation, and several of the benefits stem from having the Holy Spirit in our hearts. One of the key factors of salvation is the repentance of sin once and for all. We cannot expect to be saved and still keep on sinning just because we can go and confess our sins to a priest or even to God directly. This passage from James came up in my Bible studies today. It's in James 1, uh, verses 26 to 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So how do we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world? It's everywhere. You, you, you can't really turn it off because it's there in front of you. But we need to focus eternally first. Each of us needs to start their day by reading the Bible. If we focus on God first, everything else and everything else second, we'll have a whole different outlook. We'll go from a secular worldview to a biblical one. And I put um, a link to another podcast that I did on how to have a new life, uh, which is from the list of the benefits of the salvation of Jesus. Paul ends the first chapter of Romans with this, and this is verses 28 to 32. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. It's your choice. If you want to turn your life around and start living righteously, getting right with God, then you need to believe, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. 
I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And that prayer is in the, sh- it's in the show notes so you can see it yourself. Now, what do you do? If you prayed this prayer and you wholeheartedly want to change your life, start reading the Bible daily. If you don't have one, I recommend Uversion. Um, which is the Bible app. It's free, as is Through the Word. It's another app. Um, they have a lot of great daily devotionals and Bible studies. Also, pray every day. Talk to God. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you daily. And find and join a Bible-believing church, preferably a non-denominational one. Now, I know in these days of the coronavirus uh, shut-in, distancing, uh, quarantining and all this stuff that churches aren't meeting, but most of them are online. And so this is actually a really great way to go church shopping. So, um, look for non-denominational churches in your area and check out their websites, see what they're doing. You can listen to some of the pastor's, uh, sermons and, uh, make sure that they focus on believing in the Bible. They focus on the Bible. And by the way, Through the Word has an excellent study on the book of Romans by Pastor Chris Langham. I'm going through it for the third time as I prepare for this series. Oh, and again, I give God the glory. So, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Today we are in Romans chapter 2. And I'm titling this one, You Can't Avoid God's Judgment. And are you a hypocrite? On Instagram yesterday, an ad popped up in my stories feed for Catholic Church Victims Fund. Probably came up on my feed because I use the hashtag Catholics a lot. On their website, they have a questionnaire asking if you've been a victim of inappropriate touching by anyone of authority from the Catholic Church. If you have, you may qualify for a significant cash settlement. Doing a little more digging, I found Zalkin.com, the link is on my blog, a law firm specializing in seeking justice for abuse victims. Now, I don't want to purposely do any Catholic bashing because I think they're doing a good job on their own in giving Catholic priests a bad name. These Catholics, and I use that term loosely, make it difficult to live down the hypocrite name given to Christians. I know that there are other Christian leaders who have been caught in sin. Sin isn't exclusive for Catholics. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about hidden secrets. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul told us what it means to live righteously. Here in chapter 2, he uncovers dirty little secrets. Um, sounds like an episode of Desperate Housewives. Um, anyway, and believe me, I never watched that show. So I read from uh, Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself For you who judge others do these very same things. Now, Paul, again, is talking to the church leaders of the church in Rome, which most of them were Jewish converts to Christianity. So I wanted to put that clarification in there. 
And uh, Paul continues, and we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews, who do have God's law, will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Catholic church leaders are very similar to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And I can't help but compare the Catholic church leaders from priests, bishops, cardinals, to the Pope, to the Pharisees of the first century. And Jesus told them off clearly. And I have a link in my blog article to um, one of the Holy Week postings of Jesus uh, telling a warning all the Pharisees. Um, Jesus even said some religious leaders would go to hell. And I'm reading from Matthew now, chapter 8, um, verses 11 and 12. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell, by the way. Now, Paul continues in Romans 2. Well, then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourselves? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. That's Romans 2, 21 through 24. You can't deny there's been trouble where there shouldn't have been. And I have links to two articles um, in my blog, and the blog link it will be in the show notes. Um, Pope Francis admits that priests have used nuns as sex slaves. I'm not making this up. Pope Francis apologizes for priests' sexual abuse of children. So I ask you devout Catholics, use your brains. 
I'm not saying all Catholic priests are bad. It's just that there's no way for you to know who are the hypocrites and who are the righteous. That's where the truth and discernment benefit of the Holy Spirit comes in. And I have a link to that podcast in the blog. God judges everyone the same. God wants you to repent, to change your mind about sin. Uh, Pastor Chris Langham, um, in Through the Word, in the Romans uh, chapter 2 study, um, says, repentance is the first step to salvation. So we can't be saved unless we repent of our sins. Sinners cannot get into heaven, and there is no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory is hell. And that's another that's another podcast for the future. And I have a thought um, today too. John the Baptist was really the first martyr. Many say that Stephen was the first martyr, but in reality, it was John the Baptist. King Herod hated him and subsequently had him beheaded because John called out Herod's sin. No one likes to be called out, but God does it all the time. It's up to us to recognize it and turn away from our sins. Paul ends chapter two with more truth. Uh, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. Now, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the spirit and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. And that's uh, Romans 2, uh, 28 to 29. Now, um, this isn't in the blog, but I just had that th- the thought because we talk about circumcision here. And that was um, uh, a ceremony that Jewish men went through or, or babies um, went through after eight days. Now, the Catholic Church baptizes babies, uh, usually around six months old. Now, that it's, I would, uh, it's, to me, it sounds like it's similar. And, but the thing is, is that, you know, as he says, no true Jew is one whose heart is right with God and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by the spirit. Now we can change that and put in Catholics. So, um, you are not a true I should say Christian. You are not a true Christian just because you were born of Catholic parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of baptism as a baby. No, a true Christian is one whose heart is right with God. And true baptism, instead of circumcision, is not merely obeying the letter of the law, Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit, and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So I ask, have you truly repented of all your sins? If you believe that you still have to go to confess your sins to a priest who is human and tempted by sin also, you have not fully repented of your sins, and therefore you cannot get into heaven. Jesus died on the cross so that we could have, I'm sorry, Jesus did not die at the, I'm saying this wrong, I'm reading it, I'm trying to say it, okay. Jesus died on the cross not so that we could have religion, but he suffered and died taking all our sins away. On the cross, he defeated sin. 
On Resurrection Day, he defeated death. He did this so we could also defeat sin and death solely by believing in him. He wants to give us, you and me, eternal life in paradise with him. If you want the assurance of a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven, this is what you have to do. Believe. Most of you believe. We believe in the Trinity. We believe um, Jesus, but we have not... Um, um, I remember as a, as a Catholic, even as a progressive, I hadn't repented of all of my sins. Then we have to be baptized, and then we have to receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Today we are in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, and we learn that the entire world is guilty before God. Now in Romans 3, Paul is writing to the Jewish believers in Rome, and he quotes God's own words from the Old Testament. In my blog, I've left some of the footnotes linked to uh, Romans 3 in Bible Gateway, so you can see where the originating um, where all of, all of these quotes came from in the Old Testament. So we read, The Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true, as the scriptures say about him. Quote, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. Unquote. But, some may say, our sinfulness serves as a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? And in parentheses Paul has here, this is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair... How would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming to say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. All people are sinners. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder, destruction, and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. 
they have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Let me say that again. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Well, Christ took our punishment. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, for we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus who freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead, including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done Anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Wow. Now, that can't explain it any more clearer. We are sinful. We are guilty. However, our acquittal is based on faith and faith alone. God is our judge, not people. Jesus took our rightful punishment. Faith in Jesus makes you right with God. And here's a quote from uh, Pastor Chris Langham in the Romans 3 lesson in Through the Word. And it just puts it all in one great sentence. Being religious does not give anyone a get out of hell free card. So what does that mean? That means you can go to confession every day. You can go to Mass every day. You can say however many Hail Marys <laughs> that you could possibly say in one day, and that still will not get you into heaven. Okay? The only way to be forgiven of all your sins once and for all is to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That will also assure you a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven to the Father's house where Jesus is preparing a room for you. And you can see that truth in John 
14.2. And all you have to do is believe, repent, be baptized, and then receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. We continue our trek through Paul's uh, letter to the church in Rome. We're in chapter 4, and Paul is trying to convince the Jewish believers that faith, and only faith, is what needed to be counted righteous, to be good with God. So we read from Romans chapter 4. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, it would have had something he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record in the Lord has cleared of sin. And that is from um, Psalm 32. Now, this is a blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? Or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. And clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on the right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment to those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So, the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And my friends, that is grace. 
Okay, grace. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Now you can read about, um, you can read Abraham's story in Genesis um, uh, starting in uh, uh, around chapter 15. Even when there's no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken. Even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Whew, that is a powerful, powerful chapter. So God's promises require solid faith. Religion is a system of rules and rituals telling people what is right and wrong, which is man's attempt to define goodness. Jesus didn't die on the cross and suffer the way he did, tortured, so that we can have religion. No. He died so that we could live so that we didn't have to die. He died in our place. Now, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. He didn't work for it. He just believed. In the blog, in my blog article um, that goes with this podcast, um, I have a link to a previous podcast that I did about growing up Catholic. Um, and it's called Growing Up Catholic, Uncovering the Lies of Salvation. And it goes, I go into a little bit of detail into all of explaining how wrong the right rules and rituals of the Catholic Church are. God's promise is simple. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died taking our sins away for good. Repent of your sins. Do a complete 180 in your life. Stop sinning. Then invite Jesus into your heart and follow him for the rest of your life. Think. Who are you following, Jesus or a church with man-made rules and rituals that mean nothing? <sighs> if you want the assurance of a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven, this is what you have to do. Believe, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I will follow you for the rest of my life. 
Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Rejoice when we run into problems. What? <sighs> yeah, in our trek through Paul's letter to the Romans, in the first four chapters, Paul's been drilling into us that we need to be made right with God through faith and faith alone. In chapter five, he starts with the word, therefore. Whenever we see this in the Bible, we need to ask, what is it therefore? In this case, Paul is following up in the first four chapters with some uplifting passages. So and Romans 5 is very special to me personally. God gave me these verses at a very tough time in my life, and I shall explain. When we start reading from Romans 5, um, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right with right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. And that in, uh, in Hebrew is shalom, which is not just peace, but wholeness and completion. It's, it's a peace that um, surpasses all understanding. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Wow. that I got to tell you, this I, I memorized this passage um, uh, when I was unemployed between um, 2008 and 2010. Yes, I was unemployed for two years. And yes, that was during the Great Recession. I lost the house I had bought two years before moved into a friend's spare bedroom for a while, then into a bug-infested apartment until a friend helped me get into a better place. I memorized Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, and kept saying it over and over again, and, and I always say it afterwards, I'd have great character when this was all over. And it was eventually over. And yes, I learned a lot. The whole ordeal made me stronger. The main thing I learned was to trust God and to turn to God. I could not have gotten through it at all without the support also of my church family. What we're going through now with this whole COVID-19 crisis is, is way different than the Great Recession. But this too shall pass. And we can count on God to be our solid rock throughout it all. Because of the trial... I spent 10, uh, I, I, the trial I spent 10 years ago, I'm going through this one with a peace that surpasses all understanding. And you can read Philippians chapter four, uh, verses six, six through seven, where God, um, uh, Paul explains that. Well, continuing, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. 
Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Oh, that's, that's such a comforting thought. We are friends of God. Why is there evil in the world? Oh boy, well, that's a, that's a great question. Every time something bad happens, people ask, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Those are classic questions. Moreover, the answer goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So we continue. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted a sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, Everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey any explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is, the ver is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all we receive, it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead of giving us right standing with God, and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, wow. So that's Romans 5, 6 through 21. The legacy of brokenness goes all the way back to Adam. We live in a broken world. That's a fact. However, Jesus' grace, God's gift to us, 
is what saves us from sin and death. All God asks of us is to have faith in Jesus. If it were religion, there would never be peace. There would never be joy. When I was a Catholic, I was constantly wondering if I was good enough. I had a constant war with guilt. What we need to do is surrender. When you surrender your life, you find rest in Jesus. That in turn gives us joy and peace. Jesus transforms our trials. I remember hearing a pastor from Haiti telling about a miraculous recovery efforts after the earthquake a few years ago. He said, God gives us tests so we can have testimonies. We have peace and joy and hope because we know that this fallen world is not all there is. All because Jesus died for us. For us. Us religious hypocrites and sinners. If you want the peace and joy that only Jesus can give you, along with the assurance of a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven, this is what you have to do. Believe, repent of your sins, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me right now. I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. That prayer is in the show notes along with a link to my blog, which has other links in there, um, to other other podcasts. Solideo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Are you a slave to guilt or to God's righteousness? Romans 6 is short, but it packs a mighty punch. If you believe that Jesus died taking away your sins on the cross, are you still sinning because you can get grace points when you ask for forgiveness? That's being a slave to guilt. The Apostle Paul explains that we need to stop being slaves to sin and guilt and become slaves of God's righteousness. Basically, stop sinning. The first verse of Romans 6 packs the first punch. Well then, should we keep sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? If you're a Catholic, think for a moment. And I've said this before. Catholicism encourages sin with the notion that you can sin all you want during the week as long as you confess your sins to a human priest on Saturday so you can attend Mass and receive Holy Communion on Sunday. Paul continues, verse 2, Of course not! Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, We joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. That's Romans 6, verses 2 to 4. Now, what does that mean? It basically means that Catholic baby baptism means nothing. The symbolism of an adult or a child of at least 
the age of accountability, which is around, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, depending on the child. Okay, being totally immersed in water, then lifted up to new life in the Holy Spirit is replicating Jesus' death, taking our sin away, and his resurrection. And I have a link um, to a podcast that I did, What is the Age of Accountability? And I go into more detail on that one. Well, Paul in Romans 6 explains further, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now he lives. He lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well, then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. <laughs> Do you think Paul is trying to really get this point across? Okay. Continuing, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? Let me say that again. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led even deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living, so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord.
So what is the lesson here? The lesson is do not be a slave to the Catholic Church. Because Jesus died on the cross, taken our sins away once and for all, we no longer have an obligation to sin, but an obligation to righteousness. Paul could not have made it any plainer in in verse 12. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. And that goes for everyone who claims to be a Christian, even Catholics. Do not become a slave to sin. Do not become a slave to guilt. Do not become a slave to the Catholic Church. Become holy. Here's what you have to do to get on the right path to righteousness. Believe that Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins and that he was resurrected and and can give you new life. Repent of your sins. Do a whole 180 on your life. Turn away from sin. Stop sinning. Be baptized. Be fully immersed in water and then risen again to new life in the Holy Spirit. You die with Christ and you come to life again with the Holy Spirit. And then you receive the Holy Spirit. Totally surrender your life to Jesus Christ, every part of it. That will guarantee you a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven. And by the way, there's no such thing as purgatory. That too is a Catholic invention. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and I open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. This prayer is in the show notes, as well as link to the blog, which has links to other podcasts and more resources. Thank you for listening, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Are you trying to do the right thing the wrong way? The street where we lived in Puerto Rico was a one-way street, and many a time I'd watch as a car going in the wrong direction barely avoided a head-on collision. Did the driver not see the sign? Was the person so lost that they weren't paying attention? I'm sure it's happened to you. You attempt to live your life with all good intentions, but the sinful, evil nature that is within all of us wins in the end and you fall into temptation. Hey, remember the popular phrase, the devil made me do it? Yeah. In Romans 7, Paul tells us that no matter how much we try on our own, living under the law, that is trying to be a good person without the grace of God, is an exercise in futility. Now remember, Paul is writing to the predominantly Jewish congregation in Rome. To them, God's law was the Ten Commandments and all the laws found in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you know, those boring books in the Old Testament. However, it applies to anyone trying to be good under their own efforts. So I read from Romans 7. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law... Don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. 
So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law... I clicked on it and I lost my place. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, and, the, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. God's law reveals our sin. Well then, I'm suggesting... Am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me, but still the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Struggling with sin. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful that it, that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. The devil made me do it. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. 
Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Oh, wow. I know it's kind of a little tongue twister in that. So you might want to click over to my blog and, and you know read the text along with it a couple of times here. But basically what Paul is saying is God's law reveals our sin. Just like a scale doesn't make you fat, it just tells you that you are. The law tells us that we are sinners. The road sign that's telling you that you're going in the wrong direction isn't bad. You're bad for ignoring it. There are consequences to ignoring the law. That's where Jesus comes in. When Jesus declared, it is finished on the cross, the moment he died, we died to the law. We are no longer under the law, but under God's grace. Through Christ, we died to the law. By ourselves, we are sinful and we will die. It's only because Jesus died for us that we will live even though we die. We have eternal life. Romans chapter 8 is next, and it's the juicy one. It's one of the most quoted books of the Bible. I can't wait. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Are you absolutely sure that you have your one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven? So that when you die, you'll instantly be with Jesus. Assurance. That's what the Apostle Paul explains in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8. This is one of the most quoted Bible chapters. I'm going to go through it slowly, and at the end, on my blog, there's a nice video, part of a series, from one of the Bible devotionals in the Bible app. So we read from Romans 8. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there a second. Here is a fact. If you think that you have to go to confession every Saturday or you be condemned to hell, you do not belong to Christ Jesus. Okay, we continue. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. That's verses two through four. Now in the first seven chapters of Romans, which I covered in the last um, seven blog posts and podcasts, Paul's been talking about the Jewish law that no matter how hard you try by yourself, you can never be right with God. You have a sinful nature. We all do. We continue. 
Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. That's verses 5 through 11. Question, do you belong to Jesus? Are you sure? Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? There are many benefits if you do. And in my blog, I have links to other uh, to past podcasts of all of the benefits of salvation. Paul continues, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you feel fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Since we are his children... We are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. No longer fearful slaves. If Jesus was raised from the dead, and this is my question to you, then you can also be raised with him if you believe. You can be adopted. You can, be, you can call God the Father, Abba, or Daddy. That's what Abba means, daddy. And you can be led by the Holy Spirit. If you've been adopted, then you have an inheritance. We continue uh, with Paul's letter. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. And we spoke, we spoke about that in, in a couple of the, I think it was in Romans 1. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. 
for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including new bodies, the new bodies he had promised us. Oh boy, can I, I can't wait for that. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself and having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. That's 18 through 30. Wow, that's a lot. So if you have inheritance, then you have the insurance of salvation and the hope in the Holy Spirit. <sighs> Romans 8.28, that is quoted a lot. Have you watched the NBC show Manifest? They quote it all the time. It's a sci-fi series that has Flight 828 from Jamaica to New York disappear for five years. Then the people suddenly return and then they haven't aged a bit. And they quote verse 828. And we know that God causes everything to work for good. But they stop at good. They leave out an important part of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. They kind of leave in the Christian part out of it. But just the fact that they're quoting the Bible is good, I guess. All right. But this also doesn't mean that God is granting you an easy life. No. And this sometimes is a hard to swallow one, especially when we're going through tough times, like many people are going through now with this whole COVID-19 coronavirus, corona apocalypse they were going through now. You know, um, all things work for his good. Well, um, in Through the Word, the free Bible app, uh, Pastor Chris Langham does the Romans 8 study lesson. And he says, God is before and after and inside of all time. And he can say all things. See, God knows what you're going through, and he knows what's going to be like tomorrow and next week and next month and after this whole thing is over. If it's over, I don't know. But then something else is going to come. Something else is going to happen. Uh, and I, be I believe we are in the birth pains that, are, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, um, say Luke Luke 21, I think, and Mark 13. So, and I've got several podcasts on that. Uh, that things are going to get worse before the rapture happens. And I just did a blog article and podcast on the rapture. So you can look at, look, look for it. Um, 
uh, in my blog or in one of the, the podcast apps. You know, so things are not going to get easier. But the thing that we know and we have is the assurance of God's love. And Paul ends this chapter with an assurance of God's love. Nothing could separate us from God's love. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does this mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. <coughs> and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So my question is, who are you in Christ? Are you an onlooker? Or are you an adopted child of God? Every human being is God's creation. However, only born-again believers become heirs with Christ, children of God. The Holy Spirit will live within you, making you a temple of God. Jesus earned for us entry into God's presence. We are estranged from God because of our sins. We cannot earn our own entry into God's presence. Only through the belief in Jesus Christ... Can we gain the joy of his presence? And um, we read in Psalm 16, verse 11, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. If Jesus was raised, we will be raised. Raised to be with him in heaven, not purgatory. Purgatory doesn't exist. If purgatory exists, then Jesus died for nothing. Do you have the assurance of salvation? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Hop on over to my blog and watch the video that's there. It's a good one. If you want the assurance of a one-way non-stop ticket to heaven, then this is what you have to do. Believe, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory.
Why don't most Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Today, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul answers this question. After I was born again, that was 14 years ago, I started studying the Bible in a different light with the Holy Spirit as a guide. In one of my groups, we asked, why don't most Jews believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? I couldn't get it. We talked about it, and we couldn't figure it out. Last year, I attended the funeral of a colleague who happened to be Reformed Jewish. After the ceremony, which included the reading of several familiar psalms, that question was hanging heavy in my heart. About the same time, I had my DNA test done through Ancestry.com, and I found out that I have 1% Sephardic Jewish DNA. And there's a link in my blog to that story, and I explain how that all figured, how, figured out how I managed to get that in there. Um, I have the same DNA as Abraham and Jesus, even before I was born again. I started seeing Jews and Israelites very differently. They were my kin, literally. Trying to understand why the Jews didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah, the Spirit finally led me to the right New Testament scriptures that answered my question. It was aha, an aha moment for me. And Paul answers this question here in Romans 9. And I read, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made the covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is a son through whom your descendants will be counted. Through, uh, um, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. 
and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. And that's in Exodus 33:19. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. And that's Romans 9, 1 through 16. So why is it that when we pray for two people to be healed, God heals one of them and the other person dies? Well, that's where the two verses I just read come in. It's God's choice who dies and who survives. All right. You might want to pause and stop and think for that, that in a minute. Okay, I'm going to read those verses again. I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. That's God speaking now. So then Paul writes, so it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. So nothing we can do on our own will grant us God's mercy. Okay, so continuing uh, in Romans 9. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. That's in Exodus 9.16. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to choose the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. That's in Hosea 2.23. And, another one, then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. That's in Hosea 1.10. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. That's in Isaiah 10, 22 to 23. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom 
destroyed like Gomorrah. It's Isaiah 1 through 9. And if you don't remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, I suggest you Google that or go to Bible Gateway and search for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, interesting story there. Israel's unbelief. What does this all mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. That's from Isaiah 8, 14, uh, and then chapter 28, verse 16. So, question is, do you trust God? Who do you trust? Or are you trusting in a man-made law? Take a close look at the Catholic Church and what they teach. Is it all biblical? How do they explain it? Study it for yourself. I pray that God will soften your heart to recognize the truth, that you see the great rock in your path, that you trust in God. Our thoughts are nothing like God's thoughts. Last night, my personal reading through the book of Isaiah brought me to chapter 55 and these verses. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. That's Isaiah 53 verses 8 through 11. That is why I do what I do. That's why I write my blog, and that's why I do this podcast. First, because I know that God spared me for a purpose, to show his power and to spread his fame throughout the earth. And there's a link there to, there's a link in my blog to my testimony, and it's also in the first three um, episodes of this podcast. My second reason is because of Isaiah 55, 11. It is the same with my word. I, I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. <sighs> Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. The salvation of Jesus is for everyone. Are you right with God? Do you believe?
In Romans 9, we learned why um, many Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul reiterates that salvation is for everyone. And it's up to those who are saved to preach the good news to the whole world. And that's what I'm trying to do with my podcast and my blog. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 10, and he starts off, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. And I can relate to that. The longing of my heart is for all halfway Christians to be saved. Until I was in my 40s, I walked around with a false sense of salvation. I was a halfway Christian. I thought that just knowing that Jesus was the Son of God and that there was such a thing as the Trinity would get me into heaven. How wrong I was. Paul continues, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. I'm going to interject here and say, for Catholics, it would be doing good works and keeping the laws of the Catholic Church. And I'll get into that in a minute. Continuing. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Salvation is for everyone. Paul is still trying to convince the Jews that, that Gentiles should be included in the salvation of Jesus Christ. He quotes a lot of Old Testament scriptures that the Jews should be familiar with. For Moses writes, that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commandments. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. That's from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring or confessing your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. That's from Isaiah 28, 16. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's from Joel 2.32. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never, never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? 
And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. That's Isaiah 52, 7. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? That's in 50, Isaiah 53, 1. So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. That's in Psalm 19.4. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. That's in Deuteronomy 32.21. And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. That's Isaiah 65.1. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were dis disobedient and rebellious. That's in Isaiah 65.2. So that's the rest of Romans chapter 10. Now, the Catholic Church made up a lot of rules and stuff. It's false teachings. And Jesus actually warned us about this, as, as did Paul that there were, and, and John, that we're going to have a lot of false preachers out there. The Catholic Church doesn't really preach salvation. At least the majority of them don't. There, there are charismatic movements out there, which is fantastic because they're, they're getting the message of salvation out there. But not all Catholic church preach salvation. They tell you to follow their rules and rituals, also known as laws, very much like the old Jewish laws of the Old Testament. Like Paul says, they're misdirected zeal. They have a misdirected zeal. Furthermore, if you follow their rules, then you may get to spend time in purgatory. You don't go directly to heaven. You end up in this place called purgatory that they made up. But they don't tell you how long or exactly what you have to do to shorten your time there or what it will cost. And that's money-wise also. And in good works. And I have a link in my blog to a pod the podcast that I did, Growing Up Catholic, which kind of uncovers all of the lies that the Catholic Church tells you. <clears throat> Jesus paid our cost of salvation. It's what's called redemption. We are redeemed because Jesus suffered and died on the cross, taking all of our sins away forever. We should have been the ones on that cross. But how are you going to know that, let alone believe it, if it's not what's preached? If purgatory exists, then Jesus died for nothing. If you want the assurance of a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven, this is what you have to do. Believe. Repent. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. 
Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And in my blog are links to my testimony. If you want to read them, they are also the first three episodes in this podcast that I did way back January 1st. Done over a hundred podcasts. I think that's really cool. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing what Paul's telling me to do here. Go out and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen. When we lived in upstate New York, my mom had a rose garden on the side of the house. Mom liked to experiment with grafting. She'd take a branch from, say, a white rose bush and graft it into the stem of, say, a red one. Did we get pink roses or were they red with white lines? I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, all I know is she had fun doing it and waiting to see the results. Also, every so often we'd have a crazy spring and we'd get a late frost. It would burn some of the rose branches. Mom would have to prune them and when the weather got warmer, the whole bush would be more robust. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, explains in Romans 11 that the Jews who do not believe are not totally shut out, but the Gentiles are grafted in adopted into the family of God. We read from Romans chapter 11. Paul writes, I asked then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people. <sighs> Sorry. Um, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. Okay, now, Baal was one of the... Um, gods of the Canaanites and the, the the Gentiles, you know, in in you know the area of Israel, and um, so there were seven thousand Jews that did not go pagan on God at that time, um, because God does not like idolatry, and idolatry is basically you know worshiping images and anybody else besides Father God, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's it. All right, continuing. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is free and undeserved. Okay, that means there's nothing you can do to get God's grace. 
Nothing, absolutely nothing. It is free and undeserved. So this is the situation, Paul continues. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see. Let their backs be bent forever. Hmm. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want someone to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might have some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who are dead. Since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. I like that. If the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You by nature were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. That's Romans 1 through 24. Now, God's mercy is for everyone. We continue, verse 25. Now they are the rebels, that's the Jews, 
And God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decision and his ways. For who can know the the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? That's Romans 11, 25 to 35. The Jews aren't lost forever. No one is. The Jews will be reached and they will pay attention, as many unbelievers will, after the rapture, when they are left behind. When that happens, all the true born-again Christian believers, as well as the Messianic Jewish believers, will be gone. And Jesus is coming for us very soon. Okay, now that doesn't mean that some Jewish people cannot become Jews for Jesus or Messianic Jews before the rapture. That's what I'm hoping. I mean, if somebody stumbles upon my blog here or my podcast, I hope that that um, they will believe, they will start to question. Um, but after the rapture, when all the Christians are gone, that's when many people will look around and say, man, they were right. But it won't be too late. Those left behind will have a second chance at salvation, but many will follow the beast, the Antichrist. Will you be left behind? Do you have a hard heart? Ask God to soften your heart. If you want the assurance of a one-way, non-stop ticket to heaven and that you won't be left behind, this is what you have to do. Believe, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Paul finishes this chapter with an exaltation. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. How to become a living sacrifice for God. Today, as I prepared for my blog and podcast on Romans chapter 12, in my personal Bible study, I also read Isaiah chapter 59. And that just happened to be the chapter that I was on as I go through the Old Testament. It amazes me how God's word all fits together, from the Old Testament prophets to the gospel writers, and then the New Testament letters. They tell us so clearly how we are to live. It's up to us to read, understand, and obey. So I start with Isaiah 59. Warnings against sin. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers. Your fingers are filthy with sin, your lips are full of lies, and your mouth spews corruption. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. Doesn't that sound familiar, like fake news and people's lawsuits based on lies? I mean, it's just, I mean, that's just describing today. 
Anyway, um, they hatch deadly snakes and weave spiders' webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die. Whoever cracks them will hatch a viper. Their webs can, can't be made into clothing, and nothing they do is productive. All their activity is filled with sin, and violence is their trademark. Their feet run to do evil, and they rush to commit murder. They think only about sinning. Misery and destruction always follow them. They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. They have mapped out crooked roads, and no one who follows them knows a moment's peace. So there is no justice among us, and we know nothing about right living. We look for light, but find only darkness. We look for bright skies, but walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. Even the biggest noontime, I'm sorry, even at brightest noontime, we stumble as though it were dark. Among the living, we are like the dead. We growl like hungry bears. We moan like mournful doves. A lot of people complaining these days. We look for justice, but it never comes. We look for rescue, but it is far away from us. Hmm. Stop and think about that one. For our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know what sinners are. We know we have rebelled and have denied the Lord. We have turned our backs on God. We know how unfair and oppressive we have been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. Gee, that sounds like um, a day on Twitter. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm, and his justice sustained them. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. In the West, people will respect the name of the Lord. In the East, they will glorify him. For he will come like a raging flood tide driven by the breath of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins, says the Lord. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I have given you. They will be on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever. I, the Lord, have spirit. Spoken. You can go read that for yourself in Isaiah 59. And I suggest you read it a couple of times because it's gonna, it's one of those slaps upside the head that God is, is giving us. So who is the Redeemer? Well, that's Jesus Christ, of course, because Jesus came into the world and sacrificed his life to take away our sins and guarantee us a one-way nonstop ticket to heaven. We must in turn sacrifice our sinful nature our old lives, 
to him fully. Now we go to Romans 12, a living sacrifice to God. So in Romans 12, Paul tells us exactly what we need to do. So dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn how you will learn God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. You don't think you know it all. And don't think you know it all. Because you don't. You know, I'm stopped there a second and a thought just came to my mind. <clears throat> I've read through the Bible, I don't know how many times, cover to cover. And, you know, reading, even just going through these studies that I'm doing now, God speaks to me differently each time I read them. So don't think that you've read the Bible once and you've got it. No, 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 no. Because your life circumstances change every day. And, but the word of God does not change. What changes is how you view a chapter, a verse, something that, that God is trying to tell you. So that's why you, you always want to pray for God to open your heart, open your mind, open your eyes to understand what he's trying to tell you. <clears throat> okay, continuing. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Or in other words, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. <clears throat> oh, striving to be Christ-like. <clears throat> I was baptized by immersion in 2006. That's 14, 14 years ago. Though I had invited Jesus into my heart a few years earlier, I had not yet been baptized again. You know, I was baptized when I was a baby being raised Catholic. Even after baptism, I still wasn't ready to give up some of the behavior and customs of this world. Believe me, it doesn't work. And um, <clears throat> you can listen to my testimony. They're the first three episodes in the podcast. And if you're on, uh, if you're on my blog, there's links to uh, my blog there too. <clears throat> I had to fully die to my sinful nature and then fully live for Christ. Paul tells us that we have to evaluate ourselves honestly. We know in our hearts when we've sinned. It helps tremendously when you read the Gospels and the Bible daily. We're human. We forget. We get distracted, tempted. Surrendering our lives completely to Jesus is the sacrifice that he expects from us in return for the sacrifice that he did for us. You must believe, repent, be baptized, and then receive the Holy Spirit. Once you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are better prepared to do everything that Paul tells us to do in Romans 12. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Today we're in Romans 13, and we ask the question, does God really want us to submit to governing leaders? Romans 13 hits Christians with two commands that may be the hardest to swallow, let alone obey. But if we want to be good Christians and strive to be Christ-like, Obey, we must. And I read from Romans 13. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. 
If all Christians would obey this, would America's political divide be non-existent? Hmm. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and I used to be a Democrat, and you can read about my switch in my blog. There's a link to it in the uh, um, show notes. God wants us to submit, to be subjects of our governing authorities. Subject, that means to be under the jurisdiction of, but it's not ultimate rule. We have a higher authority, God. Jesus respected the Roman Roman authorities, even though the Jews of that time expected him to fight them and bring God's kingdom right away. What God is expecting us to do is to work within the system. If you don't agree with what a governing authority is doing, you can let them know by petitions, recalls, voting intelligently, and standing up for causes that matter. Do protest works? Sure, peaceful ones. Read the book of Acts and you see where Paul and friends got arrested for preaching. They didn't carry weapons, but even their arrests helped save jailers and some leaders and ultimately spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The best thing to do is to pray for our leaders as Paul directs us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. And that reads, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. That again is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. Now continuing in Romans 13, Oh, love fulfilled God's fulfills God's requirements. Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must now covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness, or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living, or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Oh, boy. What's important there is the day of salvation is near. Are you rapture ready? I am. I can't wait. That's the hope we have knowing that this world is not all there is. Any day now, Jesus is coming back for us. If you're not saved, here's how you can be. Believe, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. 
Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Today's episode is entitled, Weak Faith and Beliefs. God's No Judgment Zone stops here. It's not for me to judge you or your beliefs. God will judge you in his time. That's the crux of Romans 14. Back in the first century, the Jews tried to keep what we know today as kosher foods. The Gentiles didn't care. They ate everything. God showed Peter in Acts 10 that all food is okay to eat. So I'm going to read from Acts 10 verses 9 through 17. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up into heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Well, God was telling Peter that it was okay to eat foods that were once considered unclean. After all, he created them, so they were good. There was also a time back then when Christians were forbidden to eat meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols. Remember, Paul was addressing Christian Jews and Gentile Christians in Rome, the heart of pagan territory. These days, people have different beliefs about food and drink. I won't get into them here. However, the idea is not to judge someone because of their food preferences or doing something in front of a friend that would make their life difficult. For instance, I have many friends who are reformed alcoholics. It would be mean of me to order a glass of wine when out to dinner with one of them, even though they'd probably say that they wouldn't mind. Still, out of respect for them. Well, let's read Romans 14, and then I'll get to Paul's main point at the end. We read, Accept other believers who are weak in faith, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. Hmm, Do you give thanks to God before eating? And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. 
So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and of the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to the Lord. Oh man, I cannot wait for that day. I pray for that day. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and I am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with that. What are you doing? But keep it between yourselves and God. <clears throat> Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is right, you are sinning. True Christianity is about salvation. It's not about what denomination or church building you attend. It's not about what you eat and don't eat. If you eat meat on Fridays or you don't. If you drink wine, beer, or spirits, even coffee, or you don't. I love what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. Do you have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a gift that God gives you when you believe, repent, and are baptized. Then you receive the Holy Spirit. If you invite Jesus into your heart and your life, if you haven't invited Jesus into your heart and your life, you're missing out on all the benefits of salvation. And in my blog, I have a list of 22 of them. They're, they're a series of podcasts that I did um, a couple of months ago. For over 50 years, I, me, Giselle, I lived my life missing out on the strength, power, and love of the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I really don't want you to miss out also. That's why I'm doing this podcast. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. 
Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Oh, and by the way, if you want to listen to my story, my testimony, they're in the first three episodes of this podcast. So please check them check them out. Because I went from Catholicism to being a prodigal, then from being a prodigal to being a progressive, a halfway Christian, and then from being a halfway Christian to a true born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And that's where I hope you are, or you will be. Again, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Well, we're almost finished with the book of Romans, the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the, the Roman church or the church in Rome. And I call this episode Working Together for the Praise and Glory of God. Now, he writes to a church that's uh, very mixed in cultures, Jews and Gentiles. Well, you really couldn't get to opposite people. <laughs> you have the Jews who believed in God, and you have the Gentiles who believed in many gods. You know, so, um, but he's, uh, he's been explaining throughout this letter that they were now all one family, Christians, brought together by the belief in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Here in chapter 15, he lays it out for us. I read, We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And then again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said to to heir, the heir to David's throne, which is Jesus, will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all about unity, harmony, and working together. I work in marketing and I tell businesses that they need a game plan 
And then they need to have all team members playing with the same plan in the same ballpark. If each team member goes out and does their own thing, not respecting the plan, then nothing works and the business fails. For Christian born-again believers, each of us are called by God to do his work. But first, we need that very important step of salvation. Without it, we're just a bunch of nice people trying to do good, but hopelessly failing at eternal life. Paul continues, I am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I have been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder. For by God's grace, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God, made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in the service of God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message. And by the, and by the way, I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum, that's an area um, east of Italy. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in these places. And then Paul goes into his travel plans. But now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome and after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. Before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. And I am sure when they come, Christ will richly bless our time together. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because your love for me given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I am taking to Jerusalem. Then by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God who gives us his peace be with you all. Amen. Did Paul ever make it to Spain? We don't know because the book of Acts doesn't go into that. Um, I am reading another book on the history of the apostles and what happened to them. Um, uh, the apostle James 
son of Zebedee, did go to Spain. Um, but uh, Paul, um, I think, because he was, he was planning to go to Jerusalem, as he says in this letter, I think that's when he got, um, he got arrested and then ended up going to um, Herod. And then because he's a Roman citizen, he requested to, to be um, tried by, uh, in front of Caesar. And that's what then took him to Rome, which he eventually went to Rome and, you know, went to see the Roman church. But I don't think he ever made it to Spain. Um, now, uh, one thing, you know, he, he talks about is um, receiving the spiritual blessings of the good news. That And that is something that people who think themselves as Christians really are missing out. So you really need the salvation. And that's something that a lot of churches just don't preach anymore. And I'm going to just talk about the Catholic church, but also some progressive churches, because I've been, I've been to both of them. And they just don't teach that. And that's the problem, because then you become a halfway Christian. And the problem is, is when you die, you think you're going to heaven and you're not, you're not, you know? So, um, uh, in my blog article, I have my testimony. My testimony is also in the first three episodes of, uh, this podcast. So basically, um, you, you, you need to accept Jesus as your savior. That is the first point. Without that, it doesn't matter what church you go to. It really doesn't. You need the salvation of Jesus to have eternal life. Period. Done. That's the truth. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. As we conclude the Apostle Paul's amazing letter to the Church of Rome, I want to highlight his special warnings in um, his final instructions. Um, I'm not going to bore you. Um, with the first few verses of Romans 16, where Paul greets members of the church and the leadership individually. You can read it for yourself. I'll have the link in the show notes, and it's also in my blog, which you can read along in my blog. However, note something very important. Peter, the apostle Peter, disciple Peter, Peter the rock, Peter the um, where the church is going to be built. Okay, It's not mentioned at all. It is said that Peter started the church in Rome. I don't think so. Now, don't you think that Paul, who knows Peter, would greet him in this letter to the Christian church in Rome? Just think about it and seek the truth. Paul's final instructions. And I read from Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. This makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And I pray, Lord, there are so many divisions in our country and in our churches today. 
I pray that all people will seek your truth, will read your Bible, and will ask your Holy Spirit to come into their hearts. Holy Spirit, guide us, lead us, provide us with discernment to recognize the truth and shine your light on the lies and deceptions of Satan and his false teachers who tried to lead us astray. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And Paul concludes Romans chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. Now all glory to God, who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might believe and obey. All glory to the wise God, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now your next steps. Believe, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Pray this prayer humbly and wholeheartedly. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me right now. I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and my life to you. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior, and I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And I love this passage from Matthew 24, 14, which is where we are right now. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Are you ready? Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory.